Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food podcast with your hosts, Brian Cole and best-selling author, N.D. Wilson. This audio is brought to you by Cannonball Books and Great Homeschool Conventions. Here we are, Stories or Soul Food episode 23, I believe. (laughs) Nate is primed and ready to go. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm fresh as an overnight daisy. Yeah. (laughs) Which can be pretty fresh. I don't think, (laughs) I don't think daisies go bad. I don't even know what an overnight daisy is, but that's how fresh I'm feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the benefits of a podcast as we Or maybe I should say fresh as dog fennel in the morning. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I I did a lot of writing last night, so I am not necessarily focused. Let's see how well I do with my words today. That's perfect. We're excited to see what your opinions are on the first book of the Space Trilogy while we're waiting. Space Trilogy Day starts now. Yep. So we're talking just out of the silent planet. Mm. Well, that's going to be hard. I know. I remember one of the most interesting things that I heard you talk about as far as, well, for one, people make fun of us for calling it the Space Trilogy. Why? They say we're supposed to call it the Cosmic Trilogy because Lewis didn't like the word space. It's the Space Trilogy. But we will be referring to it as the Space Trilogy. Yeah, we will because that's what it is. Also, the other thing is when he made his little deal with Tolkien in the pub, the deal was, hey, Tollers, you write a time story. Some other time, I will write a space story. (laughs) So here it is. So here it is. It's a space story, people. You you didn't say, I'll write a cosmos story. That would have been pretentious. Yep. That would have been terrible. Yeah. Um, But about Out of the Silent Planet, book one, the first of the Ransom trilogy. We're coming up with other names for it. (laughs) Even that's dumb. (laughs) I like, I mean, I love Ransom as a character, but given that his name was a change made at the last minute, it's hardly the Ransom trilogy. What was it before? Unwin. Oh, okay. Early drafts, Unwin. Yikes. And then Lewis had to submit it to publishers and he was submitting it to Unwin and Sons, Alan Unwin. And he thought, that's dumb. <laughs> so he changed so, to Ransom. So he changed it to Ransom for, for, for that submission. A fortuitous change. Yeah, much better. Yeah. Well, so I'm okay, I'm okay with the Ransom trilogy. That's fine. But it is, it is kind of funny to call it that, especially because Ransom... Well, you told me I'm not allowed to talk about other books, but <laughs> no, just especially book because <laughs> especially because Ransom plays such a different role in book three. Yeah. We'll get there though. Yeah. Let's uh, call it the uh, Ransom duet. The first two are the Ransom duet. <laughs> the, the third is the Cosmic Trilogy, even though it's only a one book. And the third one is Ransom Offstage. <laughs> yes. Third one is the Cosmic Trilogy. Yeah. Um, all Ran- by itself. And then the first two are the Ransom duet. And the first one is, what do we call the first one? Out of the Silent Planet sounds good. I think we'll just go with the title. <laughs> I think we've, we've, there, that's what we think of those of you who are telling us that we aren't allowed to say Space Trilogy. Uh, but one of the- Space Trilogy. <laughs> he just said it. And uh, we do that with Augustine and other such things as well. Yeah, we, we like to pronounce things correctly. So- Yep. We're from Idaho It's a thing. All. It's a thing we do where we pronounce things as if we are Americans and not as if we are Brits. Or Cicero. Because, yeah, because that would be pretentious of us. Mm-hmm. Sidebar, really quickly, when my brother-in-law went to Oxford to be pretentious, uh, when he went to Oxford to get his doctorate, 
and he was at Christchurch there. His, one of his first meetings, he met like the president of the graduate commons who came in in full fox hunting gear. Oh, wow. He was wearing, you know, the jodhpurs and I think a green jacket actually, not red, but the, the big knee boots and the whole thing and everything was Are those, pip, those pip. pants with the hips that Yeah, but everything out? was pip pip and cheerio old man and all that stuff. And then they found out later he was a son of one of the beach boys and was from America. <gasps> he was a fake. <laughs> yep. He was a fake. <laughs> he was doing it <laughs> to the max. Anyway, we will not do that. Even though we are Anglophiles and we do love the British, we are not ourselves British and we will therefore not act like it. So he does not Augustine, it is Augustine, and it is the space trilogy, no matter what you say. <laughs> and I think- uh, See, uh, a lack of sleep makes me belligerent. <laughs> I, I like it. I recently heard Oxford's looking at getting rid of sheet music because it's colonial. Yes. Yeah, it is, clearly, and also is mostly white. No, uh, yeah, you don't print on colored paper for <laughs> sheet music. <laughs> okay, but back to the space trilogy. You said book one, Lewis viewed it as a failure. Yes. And I think that that's a pretty intriguing thing. It is. It I, is. Um, I think it's also a book that's a bit hard to read. Is that why it's a failure? No. He judged it a failure based solely on uh, response. Okay. You know, it didn't do what he wanted it to do. It didn't cause the kind of, you know, Donnybrook he was looking for. He didn't get, he didn't, he didn't land. It just, the blow didn't land. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Because the point of that obviously the main character situation that we have there's two bad guys one greedy one and one physicist yeah and uh what are their names divine and weston yep. i think and lewis kind of wanted to show the collapse of both of those points of view right but more more specifically the as the story goes on it shows that uh weston is the real villain who wants to kind of eat up each planet with humanity and move humanity on through the whole universe stripping it each planet down to the core and then moving yeah. on after it's been eaten it's sort of that view the modern science view is what lewis really wants it's to kind of an, down, it's right? an inverted uh inverted musk theory so musk elon musk is currently engaged in wanting to send robots to space uh embedded with human consciousness so he's looking to actually instead of stripping the planets down he's looking to strip people down and send the abstractions <laughs> that are humans <laughs> out, out into space but that's not going to work either. Um, wow. So yeah, Weston is representative of scientism um, and the, the, the re faith in science, religion right. in science, progressivism, progressivism where the priesthood is made up of people in white lab coats. You know, like that's of mm. uh, that kind of cultural societal progression that is entirely ruled, uh, you know, by the lab, by by whatever godless scientists might say, the high priests, right of scientism. And he explored that theme more and more effectively through the entire trilogy. But in the first one, his real goal was to uh, write from, from a mythic framework of the fall. And so to, to show these two different priests of two different idolatrous uh, religions, divine and Western, they represent different things, you know, power, money, greed, and then, you know, the, the idolatry of science and the progression of man. Um, those two priests, and then this poor captive ransom, who's once, a, a once, linguist, right? yeah, a linguist, once named Unwin, uh, <laughs> but but he gets swept up in this experiment and he gets taken away in a cool, a, a very cool ship, uh, kind of retro, hokey, awesome. Um, but they go off to Mars, Malacandra, and they discover life and engage with life, and 
They see the effects of the fall and of sin and of the war in heaven, even there where there was no Adam who fell. So mm. there is, there's mm. kind of a, it's, it's Lewis's vision of what combat and fighting would be like prior to, uh, you know, death had entered the, the cosmos, but death had not entered as a form of guilt, as a consequence of guilt. For right. These. So you still have the Hrasa fighting those big shark things, yeah. right? So yeah. death could still happen. And they, and they are killed, you know, they're, killed by men too mm -hmm. when they when they arrive when weston comes so but the, the real point was he wanted to build the framework around the concept of a fallen planet you know a fallen race and the fall of man so this is right hence the silent planet yep, right this is built on the garden of eden as truth and so man is fallen the war in heaven is real uh, and earth has been banned from the music of the spheres in kind of a in kind of a real way it is silent. It is not allowed to speak or sing into the dance that all these other planets are involved in. Yeah, the thing that fills space. Yeah, so Earth is corruption. Earth is currently under quarantine. Um, and so, and legitimately so. Now, not to tie right. into our current events. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we won't go there. So, he wanted to write this story and he wanted to kind of build off of the, the mythic framework of the story of the fall and the war in heaven and... And that's why it's a silent planet. Right. So, else. so Earth's leader, leader, the Fulcandra, the, the, yeah. whatever, whatever, the angelic figure. Yeah. Who the angelic, Earth. the angelic babysitter for Earth. Right. Is the one who fell. Yep. And then man, and man fell. So it's yeah. a, it's a combination. So the right. bent one, the bent one, the fallen angel who was over, ruling over Earth, Lucifer, um, but is only referred to as the bent one. And then you, you have uh, the fall of man. So man's corruption as well. So the reason why I was a failure to him, and I, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the space trilogy back in the day, and it, I'm never going to look at it because it was probably awful. So, but in your memory. So I don't, so I remember a few things, but it, it is, I'm, I don't have a delusion in my memory about it being good. The title is fantastic, but. but um, Do share, actual, right? I mean. Mr. Bultitude Meets the Gods was the name of my. <laughs> my thesis um but it's things i learned back then one of them was this that lewis thought he'd failed with out of the silent planet and he was trying to write a dime store you know adventure novel but one that was built on this mythic framework etc but i think of i think the number is 60 of 60 reviews he got from critics of that book only three picked up on the fact that he was using a worldview a cosmic worldview that was not entirely his own um, mm -hmm. And one of those said that he lacked conviction in it. Like, ouch. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> so, so the Christian worldview, which he built his yeah, life around, yeah. this person said, you lack conviction. He didn't, he borrowed this from wherever, but doesn't appear to really, you know. Believe it. Sell it. He's not really, really buying in effectively as an author, which is even a lower threshold than buying in as a human. <laughs> so anyway, he was frustrated by that and that, is why he then wrote Paralandra, so which we're not talking about today, at all, at all. <laughs> <laughs> so Paralandra was his attempt to rewrite the story, the mythic story. So he didn't see the series as being book one and then the sequel. It was book one and then try, try again, and then the big close with that hideous strength. So he revisited mythically and typologically revisited the same exact story. Uh, in Paralandra, even though 
we could look at it and say, but it's a totally different story, which we will say when we get to it later on in its own podcast. <laughs> um, so that but it's, it's totally yeah. different. And yet it's coming from the same mythic framework. And once you've read Paralandra, um, or as I've heard it said, Paralandra. <laughs> Par- Paralandra. By people who wear riding boots, even though they're the son of a beach boy. Right. Um, Paralandra. Um, once you get there, you can't miss it. <laughs> right lewis has basically said fine that's gonna be all capital letters and megaphones from, right from here on out so that means in out of the silent planet people were distracted by the the otters and the soren the space they the spaceness the spaciness of the story yeah. gotcha so they thought oh this is just someone trying to come up with kind of an interesting idea a new alien story right as opposed to a fundamentally human story yes and is a fundamentally human story built on the narrative of genesis yeah yeah, like that's right. and and the medieval cosmic worldview. So, which is the idea that all the spheres are working together. It's not some yeah vast hierarchy. The entire the entire cosmos being built on love, a hierarchy of love and obedience. Right, um, as opposed to our our which is our view of Earth being the only thing that matters. Yeah, and everything else being quiet. Yeah, he wanted, and he was kind of rebelling against that. Which is he was rebelling against a spiritual geocentricity, which is kind of funny. Right, because all of us are heliocentric scientists, are spiritual geocentrists. Yes. Yeah. Do we need to break that down at all? Probably no, I think, no, I think we did it. We touched it and we we're running on. Okay. We're around it. We are now rounding second base. Um, Perfect. We touched the base clearly and we don't need to <clears throat> belabor. But um, as, we, as, you, as you look at the entire endeavor, this was the trigger out of the silent planet was huge and crucial in making... Lewis and Tolkien, Lewis and Tolkien, and the Inklings, the Inklings, and the entire thing. Like, this is the point of origin where Lewis decided, I'm going to try to reach people with story. I'm going to try to sidestep all their rational defenses and directly access their imaginations in a way that they cannot deny me. Uh, I'm going to dupe them fundamentally into eating healthy food. (laughs) That's, yeah. So, I'm going to dress it up with spaceships and aliens, and they're going to, you know, think it's chocolate coated for that reason, and they're going to actually ingest something uh, far more disruptive, subversive, and edifying. It's interesting because Tolkien was looking to change the world from a young age through story. And then, you know, none of his early realm or early friends, well, they all died in World War I or didn't didn't succeed in that. But then he went on and met Lewis and they both had the same, you know, well, and their whole group had the same view. And it was driven by... um, in a, in a fun way, it was driven by personal taste. Here were two wildly intelligent, highly educated Christians uh, sharing a pint on Thursday nights. I think it was. I don't even know if it's Thursday, but for some reason that's in my head. Um, and enjoying talking about Penny Dreadful's dime store novels, you know, tales of adventure. They were indulging uh, something that had no academic credibility at all. They were not full of themselves. They were not hoity-toity, despite having vast, vast uh, knowledge and experience. They were in a pub saying, why aren't there any fun stories to read? Yeah. They couldn't find any fun stories, and so they decided to write some. And so they famously had their their bet, their bargain to divide and conquer. And Tolkien was going to write, and Lewis was going to write. And Tolkien could not escape his world, his Numenors, his... His yeah. Middle Earth, that was, that was so much a part of him already. He could not write it was, a He was story. not going to, yeah, he was not going to successfully break out of that without it being Numenorean and everything else. So, Right. It seems like Lewis is such, well, 
Lewis reminds me of your dad in some ways, where, where <laughs> he's he's so quick just to throw down a cool idea, and he doesn't right. he doesn't need that idea to immediately connect to everything else. It comes out of the same field, but I'm thinking of you know, uh, out of the silent planet has a smattering of maybe thirty alien words in it or something like that. Yeah, and then if you can contrast with Lord of the Rings. Tolkien had to come up with an entire language in order to use about that many. And words. Tolkien was always very frustrated by Lewis's casual, right, casual and flippant um, invention, right. His 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 uh, etymological constructions always really bothered, really bothered Tolkien. He was like, "This is not thought through. You have not yet made this an intact language with an intact history." And, you can't uh, just yeah. throw in things like Rasa. Yeah. Oh, Yarsa? <laughs> yeah. Fiffle Triggy? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, exactly. So, Tolkien was always bothered by how you know, slapdash um, Lewis was, which mm. Lewis got way more written as a result. Right. And but, I, I laugh too because what are, the Fiffle Triggy are described as like these taper-like creatures that rest on their elbows or something like that. And I always, I always grew up just calling them the Piffle. The piffle triggy. Oh, okay. Because there was a P at the front. And I, you know. <laughs> if you see a P, you pronounce it. Yeah, you say it. Right. <clears throat> exactly. Pterodactyl and uh -huh. such. Yep. Mm -hmm. Et cetera. Anyways, I, I kind of laugh at that because it, it, you look at Tolkien's great creatures and he was not able to come up with anything that didn't exist. Right. Right. I think, I mean, I think he's got large spiders and he yeah, has yeah. dragons of a sort but but then lewis is quickly able to dash off oh i've got sorns these are guys who have zero gravity so they're very so tall. super elongated and, and then i've got large talking otters who hunt fish with weapons <laughs> <laughs> and then i have artistic like little taper guys Wind in with, the willows but <laughs> right. with violence <laughs> yeah and a sort of a maori they, yeah. they have this very maori uh framework right. to their society oh there was that actually really good scene at the end where ransoms because he's a, a linguist he learns the language and is able to communicate with the the orsa of the planet yeah. and then he has to explain in their language what weston wants to do to their planet right and i thought that was an interesting you know taking humans taking ownership for the fall because because yeah. ransom's having to explain these things that we all understand about yeah lust and domination yeah broken the brokenness of man and explain them even though he doesn't agree with them but you you know as you're translating for somebody he, he has to kind of own that in a way that he becomes a representative for the human race which he is obviously in there's the a lot there's a lot more sophistication to out of the silent planet than people think you know they think of it as like the skinny first book the skinny first book when lewis was still kind of finding his legs and it's it's really fun it's a really fun book and there are depths wherever you scratch <laughs> you know it's like yeah. there's philosophical and theological depths all over the place the so it, it kicked off very importantly this um you know the fiction quest of lewis and tolkien um but also uh as as part of that and as part of lewis's overall journey it kicked off what i think is his best work so I think Narnia is Which great. Which one? Are we talking one of the duets? Are we talking the No, I think I think hideous. the whole thing oh, arrives at, at the end of the by the end of the trilogy, I think Lewis is doing his best work as as a writer, as a novelist. So yeah. it's not a um the first one, it's it's kind of interesting because we'll we'll get to that hideous strength, but the first book is the most juvenile in some ways. And still excellent, and still fun, but leads, you know, to really, really towering genius. By the time he's he's done with the story, the story. I just recently reread The Lost World by Conan Doyle. Yeah, and I think it provides a really interesting counterpoint for Out of the Silent Planet. 
because I loved The Lost World when I was a kid. Okay. Um, but when I reread it, I thought, wow, this is so packed full of scientism and the whole desire yeah. for evolution and this yep. weird sort of European first, even though they're trying, you know, Challenger is a, I hated him as a main character, even though yeah. he's Conan Doyle's hero. But I thought it was very interesting to watch Conan Doyle write a story about scientists going to this place and kind of making fun of everything they see and killing it and tagging it in a weird way, as opposed to watching in, in Out of the Silent Planet. I liked how Ransom is kidnapped and brought along yeah. and it just created, you can watch someone who's extremely good at adult fiction, Lewis versus Conan Doyle, who felt like he kind of peaked with the mystery story, you know? Yeah. And I thought it's interesting to compare those two stories because the lost world is all about science, scientists and science as the hero and the bravest thing you can imagine. Yep. And you think right now we've kind of, um, wandered from that that strange mistress scientism while at the same time not like we're like a it's like a horrible marriage <laughs> you know, we're <laughs> we're linked up to it and many people hate it and ignore it but it is a bully it is dominant but at one point it was seductive so scientism no longer has the kind of seductive power uh, that it once did and you think about the the wish fulfillment of eugenics yeah you know like that's like forget everything you know about the Holocaust and everything that, you know, all the horrible, horrible things that happened as a result of going down that road and just tell a bunch of godless men that you could create, you can be God men. Right. You know, like that's, that's the fundamental lie there. You get to be God men. You can re remake man in your own image and you can almost infinitely refine him. Yeah. You know, it's like he can continue to be refined and improved. All we have to do is get rid of all these weeds. <laughs> you know, and that's, and then suddenly it's very, very grotesque. And, and right. Ugly. Cause that's what, that's what's coming into its own when Doyle was writing yeah. The Lost World. And so you have what Lewis is doing is so contra that. It is, it is so contra the, the divine power of man. You know, it's the pollutant brokenness of man, the, the incredible need for redemption of man. And how everything we touch, we break. Yeah. Right now. In even, our, when in our ran even when you're a ransom, the yep. innocent man. Yep. Everything we touch, we break. And we have to be made new completely. We need the new heavens, the new earth, et cetera. So it's, it is, and especially into that moment, it was incredibly contra the zeitgeist. So it was written directly against the zeitgeist. And there, therein lay his frustration about people didn't even pick up on it. Like his, his blow really didn't land in its moment but it landed in other ways that's the weird thing it's it's far from a failure because it's what got tolkien and lewis started doing what they were doing um it got him started on that trilogy and it uh i mean the impact of lewis's writing downstream on every other evangelical writer that has ever breathed on this planet since him right and on many many people who've never tried to write just readers is is really incredible and i think is significantly bigger than he could have imagined when he decided to start trying to write stories that would you know, impact people. But as far as it goes, I would also say to you parents out there, don't let your kids read it too young. You know, the, uh, not because it's bad for them, but because they won't like it. Mm. You know, you want to find the right, you know, the right moment. Yeah. And so I, I just had a conversation with, a, with a, a young fan who told me that Outlaws of Time was you know, her absolute favorite series. Uh, and then went on to say, but could never get through 100 coverage because 
it was too complicated and she couldn't understand it. And I like what, I mean, outlaws of time was actually kind of the twisty, difficult one. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. No. So I paused and was like, hold on a second. How old are you? And you know, like we're talking about somebody who's like 12, you know, that, that kind of age. And they just read outlaws of time. And I was like, when did you try to read coverts? And it's like, they were, you know, seven. I don't know. <laughs> it's Technically like, oh, under the age range. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. That, that explains that. And I, I had the same exact experience as a reader myself where I devoured Narnia. And I was even devouring Tolkien, you know, because it was such a, Tolkien was such a linear adventure novel with, didn't stretch my imagination in, like you were, you were referencing not stretching it with animals and creatures and lots of other things. The suspension of disbelief was one big buy-in. You buy in one right. time and then you're on a mission and there's fighting <laughs> and it's, yeah. And you're, as you get older, you're gonna you're gonna pick up more and more of the glory and more and more of the complexity. And there's a lot there's a lot you're gonna discover in Tolkien later on. But as a fifth grader, I you know was reading Tolkien on repeat, and I tried to read the Space Trilogy. Fifth fifth grader should have been you know should have been totally sufficient. It was not like and it wasn't that I didn't follow it. It's that I didn't I didn't connect with it. I didn't love it. the The tensions there are fundamentally adult human. Yeah. Where Lord of the Rings, the hobbits are fundamentally children. Yeah. And so trying to read the space trilogy, you know, about the struggle for power and domination in among scientists and academics was kind of like, hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. This is different than being chased. I have a ring of power and scary things are chasing me, which I totally tracked with <laughs> at right. that age. So I think I would encourage people to kind of hold off a little, like don't force it. If your kid picks it up and goes for it, you know, don't ban them from it. But, you know, it's going to take a little bit more and you can end up with kids, you know, who still think they don't like it when they're in their 20s and they haven't revisited it because they were, they were 11. They loved mm -hmm. Narnia and they picked up the next Lewis book and, and then just said, didn't. Whoa, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. Uh, it reminds me too, if you look through, you know, we've talked about what makes a good character. Yeah. What, what is Ransom trying to, what is he trying to learn? Because he's not a static sort of viewpoint. Sometimes I think when a kid reads Ransom for the first time, they think they don't see any problem with him. There's a, there's nothing he needs to do differently. But right. I think as an adult reading Ransom, you will feel the sorrow of having dragged Thulcandra out of the out of itself yeah, onto Malacandra. Yep, there's culpability of just being a contaminant. You know that he right. is just he has just brought his brokenness right out into a perfect you know a a more perfect world. Right. Um. He has brought that contamination. He has responsibility without having made a, a super binary, clear, bad choice. <laughs> right. You know? so, uh, and I guess the closest one would be he should have gone to talk to the, o, the Oyarsa of, of Malachandra sooner. Yep. And yeah. And but, even yeah. There, but even there, it's, it's a situation outside of his control that he's having to act inside of. But no matter how he acts, he taints. Yeah. No matter what he does. You know, he's making it worse everywhere he goes. And that burden is very adult. It does feel thing to comprehend. very adult. Yeah. And so you have that versus a magician's nephew where it's like, don't ring the bell. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to ring the bell. Yeah. I put on the ring and disappeared. <laughs> and then I'm going to grab my friend's arm and yeah. twist it and kind of hurt her a little bit and ring the bell. Right. Or don't put on the ring. Yeah. Yeah. I could sing a little Flight of the Concord song about Frodo. Don't wear the ring. I know it's very tempting. Uh, um, 
Oh, for simpler times. So there's, and that's part of the genius of Tolkien. And that's, you know, that's great. And that's the genius of Narnia, but there's nothing, there's no flaw in the space trilogy. It's a different meal for a different time. So I think I tried it in fifth grade and was bummed. And somewhere in early high school, I was restless trying to find something to read. And I was like, oh, fine, I'll do that one again. It was boring. Right. And I remembered it as boring. That me too, as I remember just being surprised all the time, like, oh, weird. I didn't know that was going to happen next. Yeah. Yeah. And so I read it slightly older and adored it and ripped through the next two. And that idea of strength changed my world. But it was dependent on the, the gateway, the doorway of out of the silent planet. So, right. You know, view those as early chapters. Uh, but anyway, this is to say if your kid is 11 and picking up, out of the silent planet, maybe find them something else yeah, and it, or read it aloud to them or listen to the audiobook. And I found that that actually is more effective. Like my youngest has really enjoyed listening to the mm. space trilogy, but would, right. would absolutely stall out and not get anywhere trying to read it herself. Right. So anyway, that's my, my thought on timing for that. Don't ruin it by having people read it too soon. This is incidentally something that happens in education all the time. Uh, when you get into families and communities and schools where people say, we want it to be rigorous. We want rigorous education. Right. Uh, what does that mean? It's like, well, that means this other schools having 10th graders read Moby Dick. So we're going to do it in sixth grade. And it's kind of like, just stop. <laughs> right. <laughs> just, or and this is pet peeves as well, but people who think they're educating their kids well because their kids are studying Egypt in first grade. Right. You know. and Yeah. So we've loaded up the, the difficulty and we've moved it younger. Right. As not necessarily a sign of health or the, of- The path of wisdom is not Yeah, there. or of rigor even. Right. You know, it's just you're, that person, that poor, little, that poor little buddy trying to get through Moby Dick or studying the, the timelines of Egypt in the first grade or whatever it might be. Right. Is just sitting under a pile of dirt. You know, they don't comprehend. They can't integrate. Like, it's just not, it's not there for them. Um, right. They're, they're not going to love it. They're not going to love learning. They're not going to love the entire experience. So if you want your kids to love Lewis as I want your kids to love Lewis. And I. Yes. <laughs> hold off. Hold off a little on Out of the Silent Planet unless you are reading it aloud to them while they eat ice cream. You know, you're going to have to actually make sure that right. it's in a Pavlovian kind of way. It's actually associated with joy and right, pleasure. And explain it. Enjoy it. If you're heading yeah. into this ready to go, I think that's actually probably what we should tell everybody too is you all probably need to reread out of the sound yeah planet. start with that all of you read it <laughs> yeah homework uh for next week if you could have read out of the silent planet that'd be great although do we have them read paralandra now so they're ready for the next one no we, no no no, no, wait, guess we no we, I, that'll take away our pleasure of assigning it then <laughs> oh yeah yeah so we'll we will discuss further space trilogy things space trilogy things uh later on um but for now you should really read it if you haven't read it because you will enjoy our conversations more, I'm sure. Or you'll catch us in mistakes more often, which will also be enjoyable. Yep. Or realize how hard I struggle to say Oyarsa. Or which is why I didn't. <laughs> I didn't say it. You'll notice. <laughs> yes. uh, that's a good place to end. Because wisdom. <clears throat> wisdom. All righty. This is Stories Are Soul Food. And people are abbreviating this now. Sasfa? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sasf. <laughs> this is Sasf out. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Stories of Soul Food podcast. 
If you're someone highly invested in kid fiction and finding the best stories for your kids and you haven't downloaded the Canon app, I want to encourage you to download and subscribe today. You can find things on there such as Christine Cohen's The Winter King, Ethan Nicole's Brave Ollie Possum, Peter Lightheart's Wise Words, a book on Narnia from Douglas Wilson titled What I Learned in Narnia, and much, much more. Download the app today wherever you get your apps and subscribe.